I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books, Bold Ideas, a show and podcast where readers meet writers. And it's good to have you listening. Vanessa Chan's debut novel was born from loss and loneliness, a remarkable family history, and the generational echoes of decisions long since made. She writes in her author's note, I wrote about the ambiguity of right and wrong when survival is at stake. I wrote because, at the end of the day, remembering is how we love. The novel is titled The Storm We Made. Vanessa Chan joins us from New York City, and welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I think what you've written about morality and survival um, has so much complexity and dimension to it that I want to linger on it for a bit. I think a lot of us believe that we would make very rational moral decisions, even if our lives or the lives of our family were at stake. But it is, of course, impossible to know. And I want to know what really interested you uh, about those questions as you thought about where this, how this book was going to take shape and where it would take the reader. I think you're right that a lot of us think that we would you know, hold on to our long health truths or our principles, you know, if we were faced with um, particular and dire circumstances. I don't think that's true. I like to say that morality is very much dependent on circumstances. And, you know, you cannot tell when you're faced with survival, you know, who, whether or not you're going to be as heroic or as cowardly as you think you are going to be. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the storm we made explores through its point of view characters and um, other secondary characters, uh, the fact that this family, you know, facing the threat of not being able to survive the war, what are the decisions that they make both big and small to survive that may not, you know, to someone not going through the same thing, not going through a war, um, could seem perhaps immoral or not as principled as as one would expect. But mm-hmm. those are the gray areas that exist when I think survival is is are the stakes that are being played with. Yeah, I love what you said because your your book and some of these questions really made me muse about you know, decisions, let's say that desperate parents are making in Venezuela to leave the country and bring their children on a journey north, you know, about which they know very little. Or parents in countries like Nicaragua or Guatemala, or parents that are making decisions or families that are making decisions in somewhere like Ukraine. From the outside, I think many of us say, You're gambling so much with so much risk. How could you do that? But we see examples of this every day, right? What comes to mind for you? I think hindsight is 2020. You know, as an audience looking, you know, in through the window at these people making split second decisions, you know, for us, we get to see the whole picture. We have the privilege of the whole picture. You know, we're not in there in the noise and the, and the struggle and the lack of information that comes with being in the center of an occupation at the center of a war. These are parents who not only do they have to make split second decisions, they often have to make decisions about which children or which family mm-hmm. members they can carry across a border. And it's horrible that 
these are the decisions that they are being forced to make. Uh, and I don't think that we, you know, again, with the, with the benefit of, of hindsight and, and, uh, you know, a full peripheral view, uh, are ever able to cast judgment on decisions people make just to simply survive, just to simply find some humanity in, um, in a place like Ukraine or Venezuela or World War II Malaya. So how did, before we talk about the plot of the novel and the history, how did you situate yourself in that kind of mindset when you, you know, when you sat down at the computer every day to take up this story? Because it's a hard place to be. It, it, it could be. Uh, you know, I heard a lot of these stories, you know, growing up uh, from from my grandmother who sometimes was reluctant to tell them and sometimes told them um, as lessons. You know, if I wasn't finishing the food on my plate, I would get a lecture about how during the Japanese occupation, you know, there was not enough rice to feed the family and, and uh, you know, they'd have to mix in paper and tapioca to make the rations um, live longer. If I was too lazy to go to my extracurricular activities, you know, she would tell me that, they would have, you know, in order to learn how to dance, my grandmother loves to dance. She was a very excellent tango dancer, uh, a talent I did not inherit. But she told <laughs> me that she, you know, they cut a hole in the fence and all the slippings would slip through the hole after curfew to go over to the neighbor's house to cram in there and, you know, learn how to dance, take dancing lessons. And so, you know, I think situating myself in these stories was not that difficult because I already had a lot of them in my mind and it's not, it's not such a distant past. Uh, you know, there are survivors of the occupation. These are my grandparents that I spent so much time with growing up. What was difficult was imagining, understanding that my ancestors, my grandparents who um, were alive when they told me these stories had to live through these terrible times and somehow come out still human. That, I think, uh, made me emotional when I was writing it. You know, I think is interesting, though, to hear you describe this is in your author's note, you say that your grandmother, you really had to kind of push her yes. to tell stories about this, which is, as you know, not uncommon in families where there has been some terrible trauma, often in immigrant families. So it's interesting to hear you say that sometimes this really intriguing information would come out as not as a let me tell you about my life, but as kind of a warning. Very much so. Um, you know, if I, I learned uh, growing up that if I were to ask her directly about her time during the war, you know, I'd get um, uh, mind your own business or go back to your chores or, you know, eat your food and leave me alone, which is a very, you know, grand parental thing. But I also, I learned that there was um, benefit to silence. If I just sort of went about my day, I hung around and I observed and listened, these things, these things would come up. Uh, I think that my grandmother at heart is quite chatty. She enjoyed conversation and uh, if I just let her be, uh, these were the stories that sort of filled our days. They became lessons. They became anecdotes. Some of them, you know, like the dancing story were, were joyful ones. And of course, some of them were, were terrifying and uh, um, rendered me, even as a child, shocked. 
Hmm. Do you think she was protecting you or protecting herself from those memories? I think it was a little bit of both. The thing about her telling these stories, she sometimes told them with an emotion that was contradictory to the information being provided. Uh, I'm recalling this one story she told me about um, some of the earlier days during the war. She was probably 13 and she was out with her siblings. She had a bunch of siblings and they were out during the day. Uh, and she had to go home for some reason. And she got on a bicycle, she cycled home, and she heard this really loud crash behind her. But they learned, you know, if, you, if you're if you on your way and you hear a loud sound, just keep going. And so she went, she kept ahead, and it turned out there was an unscheduled airstrike and a bomb had landed just a few feet away from her. And she'd made it home. She made it home and, you know, she was waiting home for her siblings. There were no phones to make calls back then but her siblings didn't know that they realized the bomb had dropped during on her route home and so they mm-hmm. went to the site of the rubble to dig through it for her and you know if we listen to this story it, it, it you know it strikes cold you know in in your heart is really terrifying to listen to but the way my grandma tells it when her siblings get home, they're, you know, they're streaked with tears and they're weeping openly, wondering how to tell their mother they've lost their sister. She is laughing at the doorway <laughs> at the biggest prank she's ever played on them that they thought <laughs> she died. You know, and it's getting 13 years old. That, that is, you know, that is the mentality of a 13 year old. And mm-hmm. she's still, but, you know, even in through her 80s and 90s would tell this story laughing like this was the best joke she's ever played on anyone. <laughs> I love that sense of mischievousness. It sounds like she she embodied that through her whole life. Is that right? I think that 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 humor and that ability to, you know, see humanity in everything is what led her to live her very long life. She lived till 94, my grandma did. Wow. Wow. So, before we talk about the setting of the novel and the plot, I I think we ought to um maybe describe for our listeners, what the wartime history of the region was. And Malaya, which is what the country was called before it became Malaysia, occupies this strategically important place in Asia and and did for centuries. And it was this, I thought this was really interesting when I went back to read about it. There was a time when it was a thriving center of Islam from the 13th to the 17th century. And then the British took colonial control of the port cities. So was your fam- how far back in that history does your family go before the war? Uh, depending on which side. So my, um, the Chinese side of my family, uh, you know, the Chinese were brought over as uh, labor uh, to work in the tin mines uh, from China during the 17 or 1800s. Uh, that's one side of my family. The side of my family that I write about a little bit more is a side, uh, the race is called Eurasian, which means a very different thing in Southeast Asia than it does uh, in America and in Europe. Ex- explain that. Yeah. Eurasian people in Southeast Asia are people who are descended um, from European colonizers, mostly the Portuguese, but also the Dutch and the British uh, through intermarriage and uh 
you know, through with local with locals, whether they're they're Malay people or indigenous people. And uh, my grandmother uh, is descended from those people. She had light brown hair and green eyes, hmm. which is very, very unusual. But that, you know, that is the nature, I think, of, of intermarriage and colonial, colonialism. And the Portuguese, who my grandmother is descended from, started colonizing Malaysia in 1511. Wow. wow. So um, the day the Japanese invaded Malaya was yes. December 8th. 1941. Check my history right. on that. Is that right? That's right. Okay, so that's the day after they bombed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. What you put a lot of this really interesting wartime history in. What did the Japanese why follow this attack on America with this attack on Malaysia? What was the strategy? I think there were many many reasons uh for Japan to want to occupy uh, parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. There was just economic reasons, right? Malaysia, Singapore, and its surrounding regions had excellent uh, natural resources, tin ore, rubber, uh, you know, they were ports of uh, trading ports, and, you know, just a good place to set up shop. But also, there was a larger, at the time, um, idea that the Japanese had, which was they wanted to unite Asia under one banner, an Asia for Asians, uh, and unite Asia under a, a Japanese flag uh, to rid the region of its European colonizers, to rid the region of the British and the Americans and the French, and bring them all under the Japanese, the Japanese banner. And uh, both of these, I think, these reasons collided to bring us the the very violent three and a half to four year occupation uh, of Malaya by the Japanese and a very successful invasion uh, as well, very unexpected and very successful. The, the nature of the invasion, I think you allude mm -hmm. to this, is that the Japanese come in on what vehicles? The Japanese come in on bicycles. They... Uh, were brilliant military strategists. The British cannons, uh, the British were anticipating a invasion of sorts. They, they knew trouble was looming. And so they, you know, they got themselves ready. They faced those cannons to, to the sea, uh, expecting a, a naval attack. And the Japanese found passage through the north, through Thailand, through land, not sea, and they cycled in on uh, bicycles. There is actually a very iconic historical image uh, that all Malaysians know, which is this image of the Japanese on um, many, many thousands of Japanese soldiers on bicycles wearing very short shorts because they dressed appropriately for the weather as well, um, unlike their British counterparts who were wearing, you know, full wool um, gear um, not suited for tropical jungles. I looked that photo up. It's extraordinary. You, you, <laughs> if we didn't know the history of this, Vanessa, we would think that can't be the front guard of an invasion. It looks comic the, uh, almost, it does. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, you mentioned that um, your uncle sent you a book of photographs as you were writing the novel. 
were you, are these pictures of, you know, in the days after the Japanese invasion, the um, destruction that happens? I mean, to give me a sense of how that really influenced the way you thought about the setting and, and the landscape of the novel. It was actually very influential to me. And the book wasn't just a book of World War II images. It was actually a book of Malaysia through the years. So it started, uh-huh. I think, in the 1800s, right up until, you know, 2010s or something like that. Yeah. And it was a series of, of images uh, um, from the National Archives that were published in this incredible hardback book, uh, This essentially this photo book of Malaysian history, uh, and within those pages, there was a section on um, colonial architecture, as well as, um, you know, the Japanese occupation. And it was through those pages that I was able to situate uh, things like what uh, a British residence house would have looked mm-hmm. like in 1930s British Malaya. You know, I had a vague sense for it. Maybe I'd seen pictures over the years. Maybe, you know, there are, they continue to be some historic buildings in Malaysia, but um, those were fuzzy. And this book helped me uh, visualize very much the architecture of the time. Uh, you know, large pillars, big front lawns, um, you know, uh, wooden houses, all of those things. I don't think I would have been able to to successfully build this world without that book. You know, I, I, you also, and I think you've just alluded to this, you give us this sense, and the British did this in other places that they colonized, like India, that they're, they're transporting, reestablishing in some ways, recreating, I guess, the British sensibility <laughs> in these places that are so often not suited for it. And so they're constantly kind of at war with the elements. But I, I had that sense of, uh, of what you were creating here in the, you know, in the years before the invasion. That's true. I think, you know, Malaysia, again, is, is a land that was colonized for hundreds, for 500 years. And, you know, the Portuguese and the Dutch before the British uh, were known for being more integrative, right? They would adapt to their local surroundings and and um, figure out how the locals live. This is not to say anyone was a better or worse colonizer. We, we should never be making those comparisons. But the British were known for maintaining what they believed to be the sense of, of civility and British society. Uh, e- no matter where they were in the world, they would wear, you know, their their proper costumes. They would have tea in the afternoon. They would have little parties and, uh, and some of they would have their little gin and tonics. And some of that has actually absorbed its way into Malaysian culture. <laughs> My grandmother insisted that we would have tea every at four o'clock every afternoon, uh, no matter what. Often the tea was local cuisine, <laughs> but we would have tea, a kind of, you know, a, a beverage made from leaves and something. We would sit down for it. So... Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Vanessa Chan. I'm Carrie Miller, and we're talking about her debut novel, The Storm We Made. It has made the list of many most anticipated books for 2024. So grateful to have a chance to talk to her about it. The rich history of it, the family lore, 
that she has blended into the story and so many other dimensions about this time in Malaysia that I think many Americans are not familiar with, this wartime experience, but also some of the other themes that she develops and that we'll talk about. Again, the the novel is titled The Storm We Made. Just one other note here that I I think um, I don't want to forget to say. So the the people of Malaya have been living, as you've said, under occupations for centuries, but most currently the British occupation. And when word begins to filter in that the Japanese may be invading and then the occupation takes place, initially is it right to say that many people in Malaya were welcoming or or hopeful that this would be a different world under the Japanese? I think that it was a mix. I think mm. that some Malayans were very, very fearful because they had heard what had happened to their neighbors, uh, and you know, in 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 China, and uh, what had what the Japanese had done in China in the thirties, and so there was concern about that. But there was also a, a cadre of Malaysians who were interested in the idea of an Asia for Asians, a new world, a new colonizer. Uh, you'll note that you know no one conceived of an independent Malaya at the time. That was right. not even a consideration um, for a country colonized for so long. Uh, but I think there was it, it was it was a bit of a split. Uh, there was fear, there was anticipation, there was confusion, uh, but all of that very 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 quickly turned to almost unifyingly fear because of how violent and how quick uh, the Japanese were to lay down uh, very violent, strict, and terrifying laws. You know, you've mentioned something, though, that I wondered about, which is, did people believe, well, this is the transition that has to take place to, to an independent nation? Or, or was it because, as I think you're, you're mentioning here, Nobody really had a concept of how to make an independent nation because there was just no recent experience of it. What, what's your sense of that? My sense is that it's the latter. I think that without any clear models for, for an independent nation in Southeast Asia, it was difficult for Malayans to conceive of a world in which Malaya Malaysia was self-governed uh, even after the Japanese occupation ended and the British took over. It took another 10, 12 years uh, for independence to occur. Uh, it, it, it was just for a nation occupied for, for 500 years, I don't think um, anybody had, was able to envision a different, a different world mm. for so long. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm listening to the audiobook of uh, Stacey Schiff's biography of Samuel Adams. And we, we in America forget of what a radical, revolutionary act it was to say we will no longer be governed by a colonizer, by another government. I think we hear this and think, well, 
what is so difficult about deciding that you're going to throw off right the the chains of um the colonizers and just declare yourself independent but it's difficult if if there is no path right to follow and no history to look back on there wasn't even enough vocabulary in the malay language for words to be used in a government they had to combine words the word for staff in malay is kakitangan which literally means legs and arms they had to create a vocabulary to build a nation because there wasn't in there weren't enough words in the wow. dictionary for nation building hmm. your novel introduces us to a mother cecily who becomes a spy for the japanese as they're preparing for their invasion and as i was reading going back to read the the history of pre-invasion malaya it was interesting because it became clear that there were many spies there who again believed they were ushering their country into a a new era and that life was going to be better Tell me what you learned about the people who were moving among their own communities and giving information as Cecily does um to the invaders. There were and I don't think there were well not to my knowledge because I wasn't able perhaps maybe my research skills are not as strong. <laughs> I didn't find as many spies um narratives for uh local people for the Japanese. I did find a number of Japanese spies who were embedded as civilians I think in Malaya for yeah. right for a very long time who uh were, you know, surveying the land and living among the people uh in order to learn enough both about the geography and society in order to um allow for a uh a, a significant and successful uh invasion by Japan. There was also uh you know eventually later a number of women a well-known women spy who uh was a spy for the British on the other side. I read uh, about Sybil Carthagesu who uh is quite well known in our history and uh has been made into a movie. But the the spy of my novel Cecily who is a housewife and a mother who um steals some of her her administrator husband's documents to hand over to her Japanese spy master that is the one thing in the novel that is built entirely out of my imagination <laughs> although everyone <laughs> likes to ask if there was a spy in my family and i suppose i wouldn't know would i <laughs> they really <laughs> yeah no you wouldn't know no your your point is really it's well taken these were i guess today we'd call them kind of sleeper agents exactly right? they were living as a part of the community but also observing and sending information back um Cecily's husband works in an important position and I love how her she becomes her confidence builds and she becomes quite bold in stealing information and sharing it with I guess the person we have to call her handler right um yes. he's charismatic he's going to be very important in the japanese occupation i'd love to hear how you thought of this the beginning of this relationship and then how it would evolve you know funnily enough 
when I first started to write this novel, there was no spy. There was no spy.、What? There was no mother.、Really? I know.、Uh, when I first started to write this novel、uh, in the late early 2020 year,、um, it was a novel about three children. You know, age between seven and seventeen, living through the war, just the three sad children, and then my personal circumstances changed. I, you know, it, the pandemic happened. It was a very tough time for everyone, but it was also, I think, particular to me. My mother died, and my uncle died as well. And here I was, trying to write this novel about my home. While I was so far away from my home, not able to be with my mother or my uncle or my family, and so my novel became too sad for me, <laughs> and I needed to give myself an adult character who could run around and be irresponsible and do the things that maybe I imagined I wanted to do. I, for one thing, I definitely wanted to leave the house, and I couldn't do that. And I gave myself a character who could. And so that is why we have、um, a spy who makes these irresponsible decisions that ends up ushering in the war. But she wasn't she wasn't there at first, and she came in much later、uh, when my circumstances changed, and eventually became the emotional core of the novel that tied it all together. Super interesting, you know. And I mean, clearly, as you've said, you were grieving, and the loss of your mother and your uncle. In some ways, I, you know, I think about Cecily, the mother in this novel, who's taking these risks and making these decisions. You know, she has agency. I mean, she really、exactly. develops this. Okay, well, well, tell me, tell me what you're thinking about that. Well, honestly, she had the agency that I really wanted to have at the time. <laughs> But I do think that, you know, because of. Because she becomes a spy, because she finds a sense of of purpose, there is ambition. She she's able to foresee a future, even if it's even if it does not end up becoming real.、Um, that gives her, I think, confidence and agency that she'd never had before. And you see her, I think, as you indicated, through the course of the novel, blossom and grow into.、Uh, A woman who believes that she can have this more that she's always wanted but never known what it was. You know what I was trying to figure out as、mm-hmm. as I became more and more invested in what she was doing and who she was was, you know, I got this sense that she is not really motivated by ideology. The, at times, it seemed like she was, but then. Then you take us into this place where she has really fallen under her <laughs> handler's spell. <laughs> you laugh knowingly.、Uh, am I struggling with what you know? What a lot of your readers are probably struggling to figure out about her. You know, I strive to write characters that are as human as we are in real life,、mm-hmm. and I think that that that's what happens. Your motivations. Are not always clear even to yourself. I think she is falling for her the char- the charisma of her handler.、Um, you know, he fills an empty void in her life that isn't filled with, you know, her husband or anything she's ever、uh, been able to conceive of before. But also, 
he provides her, I think, with a vision of the future that looks brighter for her and her children, where he is offering her, even in the most vague and oblique sense, um, a world in which her children and her are not just doomed to the same lives that she has had. He's telling her that there might be a world where they are equal to their white counterparts. And she believes him because again, she, like the nation of Malaya, has no other model of behavior and knows she wants more for herself and her family, but has no idea a way to build that. And he offers her the building blocks. Yeah, I love how complex you made that because she, people, listeners who haven't read the novel might hear you say she does, she wants a better life for her children, but she she lives a pretty good life. Her husband is rising mm-hmm. through the ranks, yes, in the colonial government. He's fine with that. She's, you know, deeply ambivalent about it. She enjoys what comes of that but she also realizes the what he has to do to be a part of this and so here she is in this life that you know is giving it providing for her children unsure exactly what this different life could be and yet restless for it yes yes and i think that that is a universal uh experience i think that we see that now, you know, even with among those of us who have many privileges and many things that we, you know, we should be happy with. I think uh, Cecily is the embodiment, at least to my mind, of women who want more, but aren't sure what it is they want and are crucified for it or are made to feel ungrateful for wanting a different life, a bigger life, and not the roles that they have been set into for, you know, by their mothers and their mothers' mothers before them. And I just, I took that universal experience of ambition, wanting more, being not sure how to build that for yourself, and put it in a woman uh, coming of age in the 1930s in British Malaya. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Vanessa Chan on Big Book's Bold Ideas. Her new novel is titled The Storm We Made, and it is her debut, and she's joining us from New York City. Uh, There's this very poignant paragraph where Cecily is contemplating the nature of this attraction, which really develops into a full-blown passion that she has for her handler, Fujiwara, And you write, but women grow fonder when a man feels within reach. Women do not worship gods. They yearn for broken toys they can mold and imprint on. You know, I went back to that several times. There's such a, there's such a core truth. What's, what's Cecily realizing there? I think she's realizing that as bad as as it is, sometimes we are really drawn to toxic people who we want Mm. to fix. And Mm. that is often a terrible decision. But, you know, 
we are drawn to people like that who maybe need a little bit of fixing because they seem reachable to us and maybe we can build them and mold them into the image that we want. That is never a good idea. I would uh, advise against it all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> do I a story do believe... you want to tell about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> not not today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's a uh, it, it is I think a, a a a motivation that that Cecily sees that she grows even more enraptured by Fujiwara. The less of an idea he becomes, and the more of a of a of a person he does. Mm. Um, as with so many of these charismatic, toxic people, <laughs> it is it is difficult. You have to be shown kind of again and again, what is beneath the shiny surface, right? I mean, somebody, I've known people like this too, they can show you in different ways who they really are, and yet the shiny charisma is oddly alluring, and I think it kind of produces this sense of amnesia or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because, it definitely obscures, uh, obscures right. the truth, yeah. I mean, everywhere Fujiwara goes, he is misunderstood and under, maybe I was going to say underestimated. What, how would you describe the effect he has as he moves through this society? I think he, you know, to my imagination, he is a naturally charismatic person whom people uh, automatically find themselves turning to uh, to be entertained by, to be charmed by, but also as a function of being an Asian man in this society, he is still socially underestimated. So people, you know, his, his British counterparts may find him charming and wonderful to be around, but because of who he represents as a smaller Asian man, they cannot conceive of him as any kind of enemy, you know, conducting any kind of nefarious deeds. And I think those in combination allowed me to create this character that uh, was able to move through the world with charm and grace while doing these, uh, you know, orchestrating essentially a very successful invasion. You know, another thing that fascinates me, I think, with charisma and something I did want to explore with the character of Fujiwara is the idea that Charismatic people also uh, are a function. Their charisma and the effectiveness of the charisma is a function of the circumstances in which they find themselves in. I often wonder if some of the charismatic dictators that we've had in history, if they did not land upon a society that may have been open uh, to change, whether there was economic strife or something happening in the society, whether their charisma, whether Napoleon or, or Hitler would have been perhaps quite as effective. And that was something that's, I was curious to explore as well. Yeah, that, that's, that's, um, there's a lot there to explore because you look into history and you look into some contemporary politics and say, Absolutely. what is it that is so um, as you said, what is so opaque about motivation? Because we can look back and see what the motivation was for these some of these charismatic dictators. But in the moment, 
we struggle to really see what that what that is and all of its complications, I guess. Exactly. I think sometimes if you're told the things you want to hear but didn't, you know, haven't been able to conceive of, like Cecily, who's always wanted something more and a change, but wasn't able to imagine what those were and was provided uh, a blueprint for a different life, that was enough. And I think that happens often, I think, with with populist uh, leaders and uprisings and, you know, charismatic dictators in history. But that is a long and expansive conversation and a mm, PhD yeah. study for another day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should say that Fujiwara ends up marrying a woman that Cecily, kind of against her, I guess her her judgment and expectations, becomes uh, good friends with. Um how do you want to de- how do you want to describe the, how that friendship develops because it it takes a really winding path yeah i think cecily meets without giving too much away early in the novel a woman she finds incredibly irritating a woman who is her opposite in all ways and it, this woman transforms through the course of the novel and ends up becoming uh her romantic rival uh, for the affections of her spy master, her handler Fujiwara. Um, and despite her uh, intentions otherwise, she becomes friends with this woman who, whose uh, name is Lena. And, you know, I was, I love uh, to write about uh, female friendship. Mm-hmm. I think there is, there is a way in which women, Uh, become close fairly quickly and become wonderful support systems for each other, uh, despite their differences and perhaps because of it. Uh, And I was, you know, curious to set up my character, Cecily, flawed and a flawed loner with someone who was her inverse in all the ways, someone who was charming and wonderful and could work a room, but was also, you know, insecure and, and pure and, cannot conceive of a bad thing in anyone. And I wanted to see if that would make Cecily reconsider some of her uh, initial decisions. I won't tell you what happens, (laughs) whether she does or she doesn't, because that's a spoiler. (laughs) But, you know, I love listening to you draw that because um, that friendship was a really important element of I think why I was so drawn to the novel. I love reading about female friendships. This is interesting because I think, as you've said, Cecily is so isolated and she is reluctant to, to be drawn into this friendship, but it quite clearly changes her life, changes mm-hmm. who she is. I mean, I think that happens in those best deep kinds of friendships. We, we, um, we're given things that we don't even sometimes realize that we need. And I think that happens, maybe that happens to both women, but it mm-hmm. certainly happens to Cecily, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Cecily is someone who uh, chooses almost to isolate herself because perhaps of a sense of superiority that she has. Mm, she right. doesn't understand why she's stuck with these other gossiping neighbors who <laughs> seem beneath her for all intents and purposes. And she just wants to leave this town. She wants, 
she wants something more for herself and and uh i think lena helps her see the purity and beauty in in the circumstances that she's in and in the town that she's in and the friendships that she has um it was it was a challenge i think for me to write someone so pure and good um mm-hmm. it's quite difficult to write characters who are both nuanced but also just filled with goodness uh, at least for me <laughs> why why is I, that I, I, I think it's much easier to write in the morally gray areas there's just much more nuance and it's much you know it's much more fun to have people do things that that uh you know you can question as the reader whereas when someone is just so pure um i don't know i found it difficult but very rewarding to write uh it just felt it felt when i was writing it that it could be unrealistic but you know i hope i hope it worked out <laughs> no she she comes through lena comes through as i think some i think many of us know people like this i can think of a person in my circle who is like that so good <laughs> so <laughs> to be beyond so generous to be beyond you know kind of your usual experience and I think yeah. the the immediate um, reaction is to be s- suspicious of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think if you are well, if you are me, and apparently you as well, we are <laughs> we are we are women raised Cynics. to be suspicious of of people <laughs> around us who are who are worried everyone's trying to take advantage of us. And here is someone <laughs> pure and beyond reproach who just wants to be our friend. It seems That's childlike. Right you know, right. and, right. and it seems to mirror the kind of friendships you have when you're very, very young. But it's such a rewarding friendship, because that, that's what I mean by it gives you the things you don't know you need. Okay, this is a good, good place to hear the excerpt. And um, we're, we're experiencing the friendship between uh, Cecily and Lena. What else do you want to say, Vanessa, before we hear this? Do you want me to give some context? On yeah, the... if you want to do that, that would be great. Sure. So, you know, Cecily and Lena, as we discussed, are two opposite women who find themselves drawn into a friendship. And in this excerpt I'm going to read, they are both pregnant and um, there is, uh, they both have relationships with Fujiwara and uh, Cecily feels confused by it. I think that's enough. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Look at us pregnant lumps, Lena said. And in spite of herself, Cecily laughed. Both women lay on their back, eyes raised to the ceiling. The rain had finally stopped and out of the window, the moon revealed its half fullness, pressing out from behind the clouds. Lena laid her head on Cecily's shoulder and breathed into Cecily's neck, trusting tickling. Not unpleasant. I'm sorry, Cecily began. She blinked back a tear that she hoped Lena didn't see. I'm sorry he hasn't been there for you. Fujiwara, the shadow between them, a threat to this friendship she had been so surprised and grateful to build. Why do you let him act this way? As soon as the words slipped from her tired mouth, Cecily regretted them. It was not Lena's responsibility to police his actions. He was not someone who could be controlled, and she, Cecily of all people, knew it. 
Lena pulled ahead of Cecily's shoulder and turned on her side, faced away from Cecily so only her cheek was visible, skin nearly blue where the moonlight hit her face. That's love, isn't it? she said. To know badness lives in someone but to love anyway. It was the same with my first husband. You don't need him, Cecily said, pulling herself into a half-sit over Lena's side, feeling an ache in her chest so painful she had to grip her hands into fists under the blanket. Maybe I love him more for his badness. My mother used to say maybe love is just ignoring the bad things, she said. She looked up at Cecily, face shiny with tears and the moon. Is something wrong with me? No, Cecily was stricken. You're, you're the one thing that's not wrong. Then, as quickly as her face had crumpled, Lena was smiling again. Let's not talk about bad things. Lie down, she said. Like a child commanded, Cecily lowered herself back onto the bed and curled her knees into her stomach, facing Lena. Lena flipped onto her other side and faced Cecily, body curved the same way, a mirror image. She pressed her hands against Cecily's hands, their bellies touching. They fell asleep. Two shrimps curled towards each other. Vanessa Chan reading from her debut novel, The Storm We Made. Um, I, I was curious about whether you have, as, as noted, you began writing the novel during the pandemic, so you couldn't travel. Have you been back to Malaysia since mid-novel or since finishing the novel? Uh, yes, I have multiple times, but ah. I was actually in Malaysia when my novel sold uh, oh, really? at auction. Oh, my gosh. It was Tell me point, about that day. It was almost exactly two years ago, January, mid to late January 2022. And at that point, when you traveled, you still had to quarantine. And so I was doing these meetings with different publishing house imprints, different editors. While I was on quarantine, uh, I was quarantining at my dad's apartment and I was doing all these calls on Zoom and um, the Wi-Fi was not great. <laughs> and I was doing them in the middle of the night because New York and Malaysia have a 12-hour time difference. So I was doing these calls <laughs> oh very gosh. late at night or very early in the morning at 4 a.m. Uh, and uh, I sold the novel that week and wow. I exited quarantine the same week. And the first thing I did was rush to my grandmother's house to tell her, Grandma, my life has changed. You know, um, this novel I was writing about your stories has sold. And she goes, that's lovely. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Now, Lunar New Year is tomorrow. Are you going to continue <laughs> sweeping the floor? Or are we going to stand here and keep chatting? Oh, my gosh. For you know, real? Your family keeps you humble. <laughs> But it was, it felt like a good full circle moment. <laughs> so will you be promoting it in, in Malaysia? I'm sure it's being published there. Yes, actually, uh, it came out in Malaysia today. And uh, today. Uh, yeah. Oh. And uh, Malaysia and Singapore and I will be traveling to uh, do events and meet readers uh, uh, in February. Wow. How exciting. It's going to be wonderful. Vanessa, I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much and congratulations and enjoy that time overseas. Thank you so much for having me. Vanessa Chan's novel is titled The Storm We Made. Mm -hmm.